live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. You can never make a victim whole. I would appreciate that the young victim's uh, parents, let alone the victim, are apoplectic about all of this. But the Youth Criminal Justice Act works in a very, very different way. And it's about the rest of the young man's life, not just the horrible incident. Yeah, we're talking about uh, the St. Mike's um, situation uh, where the uh, perpetrator, the last of the kids that were caught um, and arrested, got a two-year probation sentence. We'll talk about that in a second. Thank you. You've joined us here on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Budd. I'll be your host and driver this evening. We'll be joined by our navigator, uh, Devon, who will take uh, help us on the board, and Corey uh, Manuel, who stays uh, attached to our callers and make sure that we stay in check with all the things we're supposed to do. Appreciate having you all with us tonight. We know that you have other choices and we're glad you chose us. This is a conversation that we get to share between us and talk about stuff that might matter to you or matters to me or matters to all of us as it relates to getting back on that road uh, to recovery, getting back from uh, some of that bad stuff that might might have been dealing with over the last couple of years or maybe your whole life. Who knows? But that's what we're all about here. Want to hear from you? 416-870-6400, or if you're out of the area, 888-225-8255. Appreciate you listening in. So we're talking tonight, uh, in particular in this first segment, about you know the situation in St. Mike's where three kids uh, were arrested, um, all of whom, all of which um, got uh, two-year probation sentences. Uh, you know, in my opinion, <clears throat> I think a slap on the wrist. Yeah, they're young people. No, you know, we're not keen on putting young people in jail. But th- I'm thinking more about the victim here. I think we really need to start talking about the victim here. And I'm not sure the victim has a two-year probation sentence. I think the victim's probably going to live with this uh, for the rest of their lives and require tons of therapy and uh, support going forward. Uh, two years probation? I don't know. They all knew what they were doing. They were doing it for fun. They videotaped it. It wasn't an accident. Uh, it was premeditated. I, I think there should have been some weekends or certainly a visit to a detention facility for a 30-day period might really wake these kids up. I'm not sure that they don't just go back off into college and know that, you know, if they do something stupid and get caught, well, you know, the system's not so bad. They'll just get a couple of years of uh, someone looking uh, after them, looking uh, into their lives, making sure, I guess, that they're staying out of trouble. I don't know if they're supposed to take uh, a certain types of therapy, be involved in therapy, um, whether they're supposed to pee in a cup to make sure they're drug-free, uh, whether they're supposed to do anything around anger management. We don't know what's in the probation uh, report or the probation order because they're youth and because they're youth, they're protected. One would think, right, one would think because they're protected. But if you went to a certain school this week or last week, you know, you had to deal with a teacher coming to school in blackface in a predominantly, you know, a school of uh, that has kids of uh, various uh, backgrounds and certainly many kids of color, um, you know, using words like uh, the N-word that another teacher used in class, you know, kids in gymnastics programs and, and uh, in hockey programs, basketball programs, all being abused at some level or another, not all, but many being abused in one way or another, verbally, physically, sexually, in some way, shape, or form. We're not doing a great job of protecting our kids. So this the particular story that I'm talking about right now is a, a girl named Isla Clark. She was 16 when she alleges she received a nude photo text to her by one of Canada's, uh, one of North America's, excuse me, most famous dance, dance choreographers. 
He was asking her, inviting her to his room. She was 16. Bear that in mind. His name, the piece of garbage that he was, his name, Nick Lazaria, Lazzarini. He was uh, some big shot choreographer guy. Uh, he, hours later, um, he the, 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 the Toronto uh, team performed before a panel of judges, including him. Uh, he was... Um, she was contemplating, Clark was contemplating, uh, competing, excuse me, on July the, uh, 2012, the day at New York City, uh, an event put on by Break the Floor, which is the organization we're talking about, prominent company that tours Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And they host dance schools, putting on performances led by elite dancers and choreographers known from Broadway, film, and television. So Break the Floor, Break the Floor has a huge following for aspiring dancers like this young girl, Clark. Isla Clark, the company's events are almost mandatory stops if you want to pursue a dancing career or do it as a profession. Thousands of hopefuls cram into hotel rooms and ballrooms across the continent to try to get their spot, right? So inside a Manhattan hotel, one of those choreographers that this Isla Clark idolized was now propositioning her for sex, she alleges. And he denies subjecting anyone to unwanted sexual advances. So that doesn't mean much other than let's go back to the beginning of the story. He's an adult. She's 16. I don't understand wanted or unwanted sexual advances at any and every level. That is wrong. The Star Star, uh, newspaper investigation found that allegations of widespread sexual harassment and predatory behavior from uh, break the break the uh, the floor coaches and over their younger students. So we see that in gymnastics and basketball and, and you know, all kinds of uh, ballet, all kinds of, 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 of things where uh, older coaches, you know, adult coaches have a lot of strength and sway over their younger students. Many dancers complained about inappropriate conduct and they ended up being dismissed uh, by uh, sometime down the road. And the company's owner says uh, they just let the problem, seem to have just let the problems fester. Um, Many kids have been propositioned for sex, uh, sent nude photos, sexually harassed at their workplace, or engaged in sexual relations with some of these teachers, all of whom are adults. Six dancers, including Isla Clark, alleged that that guy, Lazzarini, subjected them to unwanted sexual advances, and three of them say they actually had sexual relations with him when they were under 18. So some of the dancers and the sexual interactions were at some times, well, excuse me, while for some of them, the dancers say they were consensual. I don't know how they can, again, I don't know how this can be consensual when you're dealing with a kid and an adult and the adult has sway and weight over you. So this whole thing just doesn't line up. Anyway, uh, in New York in 2012, uh, Isla Clark turned down his uh, request to join him in his hotel room, and then eventually that began to him avoiding her at dance conventions, made her very anxious. Very, She was she was fearful of, of dancing. She wasn't sure that she could continue in her career. I could feel the relationship change because I basically rejected his offer, she said. While some of what was being said about me is inaccurate or mischaracterized, he does feel terrible that anything I might have done could have caused anyone to feel sad or hurt. Lazzarini goes on to say, it's a horrible story, right? It's a horrible story. Break the Floor, uh, one of the most pre- preeminent dance companies, okay, are, who are hiring these folks, uh, they reach more than 300,000 dancers every year. So I see those as 300,000 potential victims, right? On the convention circuit, children as young as five years old and teens spend entire weekends from early morning to sometimes past midnight in hotel ballrooms and convention centers. 
teams who win the uh, the titles uh, are eventually invited to come back to the convention circuit and dance, become dance assistants for choreographers and so on. So if you go along and you just don't keep your mouth shut, you might be able to advance. So in the world of, of, of recovery and in the world of taking care of people and the world of therapy, that's grooming. That's a grooming environment for the seduction of young people over time for the benefit of sexual advancement, period, in any way you look at it. So if you're dropping your kids off at, 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 uh, at, at, at dance or at, at Cub Scouts or anything, be there with them. Don't try to leave them with someone over a weekend. Oh, my gosh, not something I would even think about. Let me tell you what the effects, the, the events, the, the effects of sexual assault have on young people. They feel ashamed, guilt, social isolation or withdrawal, problems sleeping, eating disorders, flashbacks or nightmares, avoidance of certain places, things that relate to the event, horrible anxiety disorders, PTSD, depression and suicidal thoughts, and so on. The victims, the victims here are the ones we need to focus on. We need to pay attention to what we're doing with our children, where we drop them off and who we trust. And we need to do better background checks. If your kid has a Cub Scout leader or a gym coach or a karate instructor, do a background search. Check out their names. See if you can get any criminal information. Ask them if they have a vulnerable sector report, which is what anybody who works with children should have. It means they've been... They've been vetted through the, 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 the RCMP and, and all the, the uh, Canadian um, um, officials, police officials, to see if, in fact, there's anything outstanding uh, in their life in terms of any kind of charges that might impact whether you want to have them hang out with your kids or not. Vulnerable sector reports, paying attention to who your kids are hanging out with, where they're being dropped off, all that stuff, that's how you make sure that they don't end up in a situation where they have to share their story with a newspaper or a media outlet. As soon as we come back, we're going to talk about uh, parents and concerns about getting their kids vaccinated. We want to hear from you. Are you planning to get your kid vaccinated? And if so, why? And if not, why not? 416-870-6400. Be right back in a minute. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto seen the data yet uh, so uh, I want to see the data I want to review it and assure um, that uh, the safety and efficacy is there uh, and then review it with the Ontario Immunization Advisory Committee and NACI. We also have pediatric uh, experts to help support our strategy within Ontario that we will consult with. So I don't want to get ahead of the data. Um, uh, but once that's reviewed uh, and we have a strategy, we will ensure that we can have these conversations with parents, uh, that we can answer their questions, uh, any concerns that they have, and have a robust, transparent, um, accountable communication strategy with the public regarding this. Well, if that wasn't spoken by a politician, <clears throat> I don't know what was. <clears throat> anyway, welcome back. This is Yona Bud on Road to Recovery here at 640 Toronto. Appreciate you joining us here tonight. We're talking about parents and their hesitancy to have their kids vaccinated. Uh, are you hesitant to have your kid vaccinated? Are you going to do it? You're not going to do it? What are you thinking about? And I'm talking about kids under the age of, you know, 12. 416-870-6400-888-225-8255. If you want to give us a call right now, we'd put you on the air. And let's talk about it. Let's talk about whether you're having your kid vaccinated or not. And if not, why? And if so, why? We'd just like to share and maybe help others make the decision. Jennifer uh, is not looking forward to having to make the decision about whether to vaccinate her three-year-old son, Jackson. Uh, she recognizes the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines, of course. But she also understands her son is at much lower risk for getting seriously ill 
than, let's say, older adults. So to me, she says, it's not a clear benefit. While many parents were overjoyed at the news that Health Canada is considering approval of the first COVID-19 vaccine for kids uh, in the age range 5 to 11, parents like her are feeling more trepidatious. And public safety officials, as you just heard one as we're coming into our segment, say they're going to have a much more nuanced conversation with parents. I didn't understand much of what he said. Again, I'm not a very smart guy to begin with, but I didn't understand much of what, she, what, what the guy just said in his, in his news conference here, but it didn't sound like easy speak. So you need to talk to parents with easy speak, conversation that they can understand, right? While 82% of eligible Canadians age 12 and up are now fully vaccinated, right? Angus Reid, who the poll people, right, they said only 51% of parents plan to immediately vaccinate their kids when a, when a pediatric dose becomes available. And of the parents with children ages 11 to, 20, to, to 11 years in age range, 5 to 11 age range, 23% said they would never, get, never give kids COVID-19 vaccine, never. 18% said they would wait, and 9% said they weren't sure, according to the survey of over 5,000 Canadians between the end of September and the beginning of October, actually between the 29th of September and October the 3rd. So it, they can't really assign much of a margin because the surveys are not considered random samples. But most of the research that they've seen indicates that parents are more hesitant to vaccinate their kids against COVID than themselves. So that becomes the conversation. Are you going to have your kids vaccinated if it becomes, you know, if it becomes authorized to do so? If so, how come? What's your decision process? If not, why not? Let us know here. 416-870-6400. Be glad to talk to you. There are several reasons parents might decide to pause, though. It's true that a child may be at lower risk of serious outcomes associated with COVID-19, but there's been very, and there's been very, very rare incidents of an mRNA vaccine like Pfizer and Moderna linked to cases of anything serious or anything serious around the swelling of the heart muscle. Uh, Health Canada has documented 859 cases associated with vaccines, which mainly seem to affect people under 40 years of age and people who have developed complications have typically been fine after. We have Peter from Toronto. I don't see why parents are hesitant. Peter, thank you, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, um, I, to me, you're either hesitant or you're not hesitant. So it, people at age, the 21-year-olds, let's say, for example, aren't allowed to be hesitant, right? And, and they are not at risk, but they are forced to take it. Then the the younger age between uh, I think twelve and sixteen they are not allowed to be hesitant, and they're being forced to take it. So how come you're allowed to be hesitant when you're of a nine year old now? If we say we're believing the science, then let's go all out and vaccinate everybody. You can't just so, allow one section to be to be hesitant. Yeah, I, I get it. I think I think the problem. Do you have kids, Peter? I do have kids. Yeah, uh, are your kids in that age range under eleven? Yes, they are. I have some below and some above okay some so when you start talking about the number of kids you have in terms like some you obviously have a big family and congratulations no no, for no. That. Just, just, I'm, not, just I'm kidding just three but do you, do you see my do you see my point or i do i see your point so are you hesitant are you are you hesitant to have your to have your younger kids i am hesitant but no i i am hesitant about my kids but but everybody the whole society is not allowing people to be hesitant when the age is from 12 because they don't have a high risk either Right. right, my my kids are in puberty, but I have, yeah. but I'm forced to, to vaccinate them if they want to go to school. So so it's either right or wrong. You can't have it both ways. You can't have some parents being hesitant because of their nine year old, and then you're not allowing another parent 
they're calling them names for being hesitant over a 12-year-old. So do you think it should be like the mumps and measles shot? You don't have it, you don't go to school? No, I, I believe in free choice. Okay. I don't see how, how, why you would, especially, so, so people want free choice when it's a five-year-old. So why can't I get free choice when it's a 13-year-old? They they they're about the same risk. If they're, if they're healthy, they don't have, and then if you're allowed a free choice at 13 years old, why can't a 23-year-old have free choice? They have very low risk um, if they're healthy. And then if a 23-year-old is allowed to have free choice, why can't a 33-year-old? Do you see what I'm saying? You, you yeah, I do, but, both, you know, P- Peter, three. yeah, I hear you. And, Peter, I would go back to what you said originally, which is probably the, the part of the conversation that most impacted me, is that if we're all in, we're all in with both feet. That means 5-year-olds and 55-year-olds, and, and, I, and, and, and I dig that. I, I'm, I'm all over that as a concept. But if you look at the countries where they haven't been stressing people or really pressuring people, if the, that's the right word, to get vaccinated, they're having a hell of a time now, brother. They're having, they're seeing a, a resurgence of this, of, of, of disease and even younger people are getting sick and, and, and hospitalized. So I think this herd immunity, herd immunity thing where everyone gets vaccinated and it's a benefit, um, probably has some science. Listen, I had, I had my two shots. I'm waiting for my third. Uh, I'm not crazy about it. I, I know some people have had terrible reactions to it. Well, what do you mean but, you're you know, not crazy about it? Well, what I'm, not cra- I'm, not cra- I'm not crazy about sticking needles in my arm with anything. Why Never. not? Follow the science. You see, you see I, I, I am Okay, okay listen. Hey, no, 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 no. Don't, no, I didn't say I wasn't going to do it because I've done it. I do so believe in the science. How you do it? You, how, you were going to do it for life? Because in, in, in Israel... If, 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 if I have to do a booster every year for life, like I do my flu shot, and, and, I, and I also got my pneumonia shot and my shingles shot and all the stuff I'm supposed... I get them all. I don't like it. I don't like sticking anything in my body yeah, like isn't that. Isn't it fair to give people a choice, though? Uh, I don't know. It depends on that. Depends on how it affects. It depends on how it. Yeah, fair is a, is an interesting word. It depends on how it affects our society, right? So if 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 by giving people a sh- if we if the, if if we're going to give people a chance, right? Then we got to give people a chance and make decisions. But it can't impact whether you can go to work or whether my my ninety five year old mother can see a doctor in person. Anyway, I appreciate yeah, the call, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for joining right, us today. No I appreciate problem. it. Um, but you know, the, the, I want to I want to get on to this a, a little bit because you know, Peter raises a point. You know, should it should it be a choice? And, you know, absolutely, we should live in a country where there's choices. But you know, with the when the pandemic hit, a lot of stuff changed. We changed. Our choices changed. Our opportunities for choice changed. Right. So now we're talking about whether parents want to vaccinate their kids, should vaccinate their kids, shouldn't vaccinate their kids. I mean, Peter goes on to say that it should be a choice, and he's pretty sounds pretty adamant and pretty passionate about it. And I and I respect his opinion. But he's got his kids, his older kids, vaccinated because they don't have a choice. He's also got a vaccination because he doesn't have a choice. So the question would be, if Peter had a choice, would he vaccinate himself or his children? I don't know. I didn't ask him that question, but uh, my guess is maybe not. But maybe. I don't know. Uh, so choice is a wonderful thing. You don't have to be vaccinated. And you don't have to vaccinate your children. But it just might restrict what you're able to do or not do and what they're able to do or not do. Children under 12 now are leading the COVID-19 infections across Canada. Children under 12 now make up the largest number of new COVID-19 infections, as Health Canada says vaccinations for that age group are still weeks and weeks away. Infections in that age group surpass those of all other age groups for the first time in the fourth wave of the epidemic. It's not an unexpected pattern, according to Dr. Teresa Tam. She doesn't see anything as a really big deal. She's just, you know, really easygoing about it all, maybe a little too easygoing. Anyway, I think the key is that in general, 
they have milder illnesses and there are occasionally rare aspects of severe outcomes. We very rarely do we ever result in death. What do you mean very rarely? How many kids have been lost or how many young adults have been lost to death as a result of getting COVID-19? I'd like to know that number. They never show those. They never talk about how many of the 500 or 400 or 300 that we have this day or this week, whatever, how many of those are kids. I mean, they show the numbers in age category, but it doesn't really jump out at you like it should. So in the projections, the COVID-19 projections released this past Friday, uh, public health officials uh, called for increased vaccination among those who interact with children under 12 in order to protect them from uh, the disease, from the virus. This is why, uh, as it goes on to say, this is why we have to go on, and particularly for young adults who are, par- have, who are, who are parents or close contact to children under 12, make sure they're vaccinated and so on. We have to, we have to be careful. There's, to date, more than 350,000 cases have been reported in that age range. We're going to start seeing small outbreaks in schools coming forward. Most outbreaks among children have been very small, involving fewer than a few cases, four cases at most. Uh, but it, it's an age range that needs to be looked at if we're going to if we're going to do like Peter says, we're all in or we're not all in, right? And, and and I and I like that line. I like that what he said. We're if we're doing it, let's do it. And I and I believe that. I think if we're going to do it, let's do it. But you know what? Who get the, who's losing out here are these kids, right? Kids. We keep talking about kids and kids and kids. When you come back from break here, take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how kids can become more resilient and what you can do to help. Because I think that's what this needs to be. Uh, that's the discussion we need to have now. How are we going to help these kids? Yonabud, 640, Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yonabud continues. Only on 640 Toronto. Hi, welcome back. I feel so fortunate that I never had to share a toothbrush with my three brothers, <laughs> like the commercial ahead of me here. Uh, thank you and welcome back. This is Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud, and uh, please, you can join us. You can interact with us tonight by calling 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255, or please text me at 647-488-0086. Love to hear from you. It's an interactive show. My boss looks to see who's calling, who's texting, who's looking in on us. And uh, if no one's calling, no one's texting, who knows? Maybe I won't be here next week. I'm just kidding. I got a contract. I'm here for a while. No, just. Anyway, how do kids become more resilient in the face of life's hurdles, right? How do you teach kids how to just deal? It's not so easy. And it's not so easy as an adult to just figure out how to be resilient. But kids have been through an awful lot in the last couple, you know, 20 months, almost two years. And they are, frankly, faring, some are faring out much better than others. And um, many chalk up, you know, what's happened to just kind of, an equal amount of resilience and, uh, and, um, and, and, and some just level of, of, you know, not really caring. You know, some kids just don't see the world in the big picture at, at certain ages, at certain stages. So it makes their life a lot easier, a lot calmer, uh, maybe a lot simpler in so many ways. But when it comes to the fallout from a global pandemic or navigating daily frustrations and stuff, some kids do it with greater ease than others, right? So if your child's more prone to sweat the small stuff and the big stuff for that matter, uh, Sunita Monga, she's a psychiatrist in chief at the hospital for sick children. She says there are steps you can take to help them, right? And she starts off with the a definition of what is resilience. So I'll read the, the definition according to her. The ability to adapt in the face of stress, adversity, or trauma, navigating those difficult waters that happen in everybody's life. Like all of us, kids experience twists and turns in their lives, and their ability to adapt and navigate them is what I would say is resilience. It comes from within. And I would agree. I, I've been working with kids for almost four decades, 
yeah, over four decades, and um, I would say some are more resilient than others, and a lot that are resilient are much more resilient because their parents are resilient. So think about how your child reacts to things thrown in, her, in their way, like uh, are they easygoing, are they more flexible, or do they struggle with little changes, simple changes? That might, need, that might be someone that needs a little support, building up their resilience. So can I help my child become more resilient is one of the questions. Try to ensure your child is engaging with family and friends, and, it has, and they have people around who are compassionate and who understand them. Having a community of empathetic people can help a child build resilience. Also, make sure your child's basic cares, basic life skills, or health, health needs are looked after, such as sleeping well, eating well, exercising well, all the basic stuff we need to do as adults as well, by the way, eat, sleep, and work out. If your child feels depleted or is overtired, play a complete role. You can see a role in their diminished resilience, as to with adults, by the way. So something, if you can help the kid find a purpose, having something in their life that's meaningful to them, sports, art, chess, some form of performance, uh, building models, you know, doing puzzles, anything, uh, building a you know, treehouse in the backyard. Uh, it needn't be a skill or a talent necessarily, just something that they find enjoyable and fun. might even be family game nights or, or board games with their siblings. You live in that kind of a house. I don't know many people that, that do that, but yeah, uh, board games. Uh, when they're older, they might consider volunteering or donating some time maybe. That might be something if they're passionate about to give them some, some, some change. But you can model resilience, right? You can, if you can adapt to change and maintain a hopeful outlook, okay, well, I guess the, story's, the store is closed. We can go over here now versus, oh, my God, the store is closed. What are we going to do? And you rip your hair out, your kids are going to do the same. So it's not about pretending some things not, aren't, aren't hard. It's about keeping things in their perspective, the experts say. And your tone, as the tone that we use, your ability to adapt to those changes and change and situations matters. So the tone you use, the facial expressions, the body language, kids pick up on all of that. And as you pay attention to your child's overall health, they say, the experts also say, you should look after your own. So making sure you're taking care of yourself with good eating habits, sleeping habits, all that kind of stuff. I talk to you know everyone, child or adult alike should be meditating. People should meditate. They should learn to meditate, learn to breathe, four-by-four four box breathing, you know, the in through your nose for a count of four, hold it for a count of four, blow it, blow it out with uh, some strength, count of four. You do that, I don't know, for two or three minutes, you're going to find that if you're anxious or uptight or stressed, you're going to go from, let's say, a nine or ten on a scale out of ten to a two or three immediately. So you have to – there are ways that kids – can cope with disappointments, right? There, there are ways. You want to, so here's what you do. You have to praise their process, not the result. It shouldn't be whether they win or lose, but how hard they work at it. It shouldn't be whether they succeed or not succeed in a particular thing. It should be how hard they work at it. It should be the effort. Some kids are just smarter, better, faster, quicker, you know, more resilient than others. Some are not. doesn't matter. It shouldn't be about performing against others. It should be about self Performance. Perform, perform against your own bests, beating your own bests. If you got a C in, in math last term and your goal is to get a C plus, that's good enough. Even if the other kids in the class are B plus, doesn't matter. For you, a C plus could be like an A to somebody else. For your kids, it's the same, right? You don't say things to them like, uh, you're absolutely the best. 
but you might say something like, you know, that can be prob- you know, that, that you want to tell them things like uh, if the result is disappointing, that you understand the process and the amount of work that they put into it, and it's a worthy process. And it's easy to, you know, to, to, you know, it's much easier to put your pers- disappointments in perspective when you don't see them as life failures, but as opportunities to grow. So you really made, for example, a, a, a parent might say, you really made an effort on that project. I saw how hard you worked on it, and I'm really proud of you, rather than that was the best project I've ever seen. You're the best. We call this effective praise. Great job learning the spell words versus you're so smart. So we're setting our kids up to fail by making them think they're superstars when they're not. It might be okay that your kid is average, but average for your kid might be super might be the best that they can accomplish because of what they what they adapt to with their, their their intellectual levels who knows right some kids can throw a ball some kids can't who cares but you praise the attempt you praise the virtues of trying and you let your kid know that it's okay that as long as they work hard and do the best they can be and do the best that they can do for them then they're the best that they can be not the best in the world but the best that they can be and the best job they could do right now so think about refraining the incident or the piece of work not as a failure, but as a learning exercise. Is another thing. When kids don't do well in something, frame it as a learning exercise. You know what? I know you worked really hard on this, and I'm sure next time, you know, you're going to learn from some of the things that you uh, could have done better, like this, this, and this. And you, you know, my ch- chances are you're going to do a much better job when you do it the next time. Or something like, I know you're sad your friend didn't want to play with you, but maybe you know, play a game with another friend. You know, you don't want to fall into the trap of fixing everything for them. Um, there's a convert, there's, you know, this is where kids today, the suicidal kids, you know, talk about, um, you know, not being able to, uh, uh, go off to college because they don't have the skills to, 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 to go shopping and so on. You know, that's, it, it's, kids can't look after themselves if we don't teach them how to fall down and pick themselves up. Right. Something here that talks about, um, uh, be a gardener. The experts go on to say, she goes, Alison Gopnik says she's a philosophy professor she says, be a gardener, not a carpenter. She suggests parents think of themselves as gardeners by creating a rich, nutrient, but also variable, diverse, dynamic ecosystem, meaning create the ability for them to grow, but don't try to mold or shape your children into something that they're not. And we do that all the time. We all do it in this generation, generations before. We try to live through our kids and expect things from them that we might have expected from ourselves and couldn't achieve when we were their age. You know, parents that push their kids into certain sports because, you know, they want to, uh, they want to, you know, they weren't good basketball players, but their kid might be. So they push them into basketball. Try to be a gardener, create a nurturing environment, not a carpenter. Don't fix things for them. Don't mold them. Don't sculpt them. Let them be who they need to be. I think it's a nice way of framing things, says Sunita Manga. She's the psychiatrist in chief at SickKids. Parents should try as much as possible within their means to give their children opportunities to navigate their own path, live through their own path. And, you know, this doesn't seem like such a heavy discussion and why are we talking about it and, you know, we're on the road to recovery. What does this have to do with recovery and so on? If you want your children to be resilient, you got to let them fall. And when they fall, you got to let them pick themselves up. You don't want them to break their leg, but there's nothing wrong with a bruise or a scrape. You know, a Band-Aid and a little bit of uh, uh, Neosporin isn't going to kill anybody. And what it teaches you to do is make sure that maybe you don't fall the next time. But if every, every time our kid falls and we pick them up, sooner or later when they're alone and they're not at home with us anymore and they fall, 
guess what? They're not going to be in a position to pick themselves up. When we come back from break, we're going to take on some more stuff about kids. The last segment in our uh, uh, early uh, the hour one, the last segment dealing with kids is the first hour we deal with kid-related stories when we can. And we're going to talk about how parents are fretting over the gaps in mental health care. Like, no kidding, right? You don't need to be a parent to fret over it. Just looking at what's going on is enough to make you sick. As soon as you come back, we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about that. You can give us a call here, 416-870-6400. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okie dokie, welcome back. Thank you for joining me. This is uh, Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery. Hope you're strapped in and comfortable. We're uh, going to uh, top off our first hour uh, with our last segment and talk about the um, issues that parents are having with the gaps in mental health care for their kids. Now, you got to understand, well, you don't have to understand. I'm suggesting you understand that going into this, um, the hospital system, medical system, was already overloaded. The support system for people with mental health, and, mental health and addiction issues was severely overloaded long before the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic hit and uh, changed our lives probably in ways we'll never be able to forget and for not only for adults but for kids clearly as you hear us talk about every show uh try to focus and profile some stories around children and how difficult it might be for them and how they might be struggling but you know the system was already overloaded we already had a hard time finding psychiatric support psychological support inpatient support outpatient programs treatment programs it was already a mess now almost two years later we're looking at the, the world going forward, and hopefully we're coming out of uh, the almost two-year lockdown in, in many ways and beginning to live our lives normally again. That backlog hasn't gone away. As a matter of fact, it's gotten worse because facilities and programs weren't open for face-to-face treatment, and many people don't do well, especially kids. Many people don't do well with virtual care. So I think we're talking – the story we're talking about here, um, it's coming from uh, – Nadine Youssef from uh, Toronto Star. She's uh, a writer that I follow, although she keeps refusing to come on our show. But anyway, a writer I follow. Um, she does an excellent job of profiling mental health and addiction stories. And she goes on, we're going to talk about uh, this woman, Jenny Carson, her six-year-old son. He was on a late wait list uh, for a therapy program at uh, CAMH, Center for uh, Addiction and Mental Health. And <clears throat> it's a kid that thrives on routine. He, suffer- he suffered as soon as the uh, pandemic began, she said no longer going to school or meeting friends. Uh, Some days were spent looking at the computer screen as she finished junior and senior kindergarten from home. Uh, Exceptionally difficult, uh, she went went on to say, as he struggled with tics and anxiety. He would not go to a computer screen for virtual learning, partly because his tics were so pronounced and he's very much aware of it. Adding his anxiety significantly worsens as the months dragged on. Carson and other Toronto parents are frustrated with the long wait and lack of in-person mental health care services. We never had it before, and now that now it's even worse. So for sure, it's going to be an issue. And you know, we're not getting a lot of help in the school system. We're not getting a lot of help uh, in in the public system. And my question is, where's all the money going? I know that you know we've had Minister Tabolo on numerous times. We've talked to other officials and, and experts uh, off the air, on the air, um, and millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars have been pledged towards youth mental health and mental health support in general. Don't, you know, we don't see it. The lineups are still 
crazy long, right? Many healthcare providers still offer just virtual care, forcing the Ontario Chief Medical Officer, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, to actually urge physicians to see patients in person. There are limits that we can be done virtually, and the standard of care is often difficult to meet in a virtual care environment, Dr. Moore goes on to say. He also, the Minister of Health, followed by releasing official guidance to healthcare providers starting on October 19th, stating that they should be resuming in-person visits based on clinical need and patient reference preference. It, it's not it's not even so much whether the they want to. They can't find time in the day. I'm one single practitioner, and I've had to hire people just to keep up with the number of patients that we serve in our virtual outpatient program, recover at home, in our virtual outpatient program. I started as one guy just doing, you know, virtual therapy with my existing client base, customer base, or customer base, patient base, and doing it virtually, right? Because we weren't able to see each other. And that grew and it grew and it grew. Now it's just we can't turn people away. There's just not enough support out there. And the government funding, you know, that's come, we, we just don't see it. Where, where's it gone? Where's the 40, 20, 30, $40 million? Where's it gone? Where's it gone to make sure that nurse practitioners, perhaps, can do the triage on some of these patients if the doctors aren't available? They get some kind of in-person help. Come in and see a triage nurse. Come in and see a specialist. Come in and see a nurse practitioner who can specialize in at least talking to your kid or, or adults, for that matter, about their mental health needs. And then set up perhaps a virtual care session with a psychiatrist. At least, you know, some combination of in-person and, and, and virtual might work. The kids aren't getting better any faster. And the longer that we keep them at home, the longer that we keep them waiting six months, eight months, 10 months, 12 months to get help, the more kids we're going to lose. The more that become suicidal, the more that become withdrawn, more that don't decide that they don't, they decide that they don't want care, they give up. It's a problem. And even though hospitals are sitting with 97%, 98% staff vaccinated, the issue around getting in to see someone as sick kids is still very, very difficult. We tried to get them on the air. They weren't able to, to come and join us. I guess it's the late, the late hour of the evening. We're hard to get uh, guests that want to come on and chat. But anyway, it's uh, my problem, not yours. So they see people are another, another family. Her, her name is Kim. Anxiety in her eight-year-old. Uh, suddenly after two family members died as a result of COVID, kids started breaking out in outbursts and showing signs of anger and punching holes in the wall. Thought to see a psychiatric, sought for a psychiatric assessment in February of 2021 and just got an appointment in September of 2021 with sick kids. How do you manage a kid that's in that shape for six months? What's a parent supposed to do? How does it impact the other siblings in the house? How's that work out? How's that going to make any sense? We need to see these kids now. It's amazing how quickly we can, we can uh, uh, mobilize when we want to stick needles in people's arms. And, and yeah, I'm and all for it, and I, I support it, and I'm all for getting out there and getting people help that they need to help when they need it. But why don't we have mobile devices, more mobile you know, facilities on the road where kids can come and see them, where you can pull into a parking lot in a shopping mall and you can, you know, you can make an appointment, bring by your child and, and, and see somebody. And maybe it's a fourth year, you know, psych student or a fourth year, you know, psych, someone who's in, in, in psychiatric, uh, uh, psychiatric um, part of their rotation uh, in terms of their internship. Something is better than nothing and better than having a parent tied at home trying to figure out how to handle a kid who's completely out of control. We need to do a better job. I say it all the time. Waiting six or eight months for a child 
to see therapist for an adult to see a therapist that could be life changing it could be costing us lives so where's the money going i don't want to get into politics it's not my thing but a spokesperson for sick kids confirmed that the hospital is still offering online therapy sessions and therapeutic groups and, and day programs under its psychiatric wing and it plans to shift to start some in person care in early 2022 like come on it's sick kids hospital it's the world's best children's hospital many would say they got to do a better job there's got to they can put tents in parking lots when we want to put jabs in people's arms we can put mobile buses and devices and turn you know turn uh, go buses into uh, into uh, into virtual or into mobile um, facilities medical facilities for the purposes of inoculation and and uh, and providing vaccines to others why can't we put together mobile uh, psych vehicles, mobile support vehicles that provide experts out in the field to help these families get past what they need to get past. That's the issue. That's what we need to be talking about. That's why they're feeling the gaps, because we're not doing anything to fill the gaps. Where's the money? I keep saying, where's the money? Where's access to more beds? You know, uh, to address lengthy wait times for services, Lighthall, spokesperson of the Ministry of Health, W.D. Lighthall said, well, the province's, province issued guidelines for care providers to resume in-person services. It's still up to the hospital administrator to figure that out. To address lengthy wait times, Lighthall had added the province announced funding in June of around $20 million to government-funded children and mental health agencies. Okay, where's it going? And who's it helping? And who's getting in to see a shrink sooner than later? I don't hear it. I don't see it. I don't hear it from the parents that call me. You know, I, t- I have to turn people down all the time, and it breaks my heart because I'm just not set up to see certain types of kids with certain types of disorders. We don't have the depth in our in our roster of caregivers and, and, and therapists in my group to deal with certain things. It just they need special care, and generally it's you know care that you can get in a hospital or a learning a learning hospital, a teaching hospital environment. But it's a sad state of affairs. I understand why parents are really upset. I, I, my heart goes out to them. I wish we could come up with a better solution. In the meantime, you know, I, I'm happy to take phone calls from parents or families uh, at 888-877-5808. I'm glad to help you in whatever way I can, introduce you, find you solutions, referrals, help myself if I can, whatever it takes. So feel free to reach out. Be glad to talk to you. When we come back from our break, remember, it's a longer break, so you chance to use the bathroom, maybe have a sandwich, go out for a smoke if you do that, whatever whatever it takes. And get off the bus for a bit on our road to recovery. We'll getting, be getting back on uh, shortly after, uh, 10, uh, shortly after uh, 10 o'clock. So we'll see you in shortly, and we're going to be talking about um, what's happening with legal aid. And I think the government's paying for lawyers to basically plead, guilt, plead guilty to as many cases as they can to get through the, the backlog. I think it stinks. We're going to talk to a lawyer about it. I think they're going to think it stinks too. Uh, but uh, come back. You'll join us shortly. Yona Bud, 640, Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey there, welcome back. I hope you had a nice little break and you took some time to, uh, I don't know, have something to eat, something to drink, use the bathroom, and we get back on the bus on this road to recovery, and off we go. Strap yourself in. We've got more to do. You're listening to Yona Bud. I will be your host this evening on 640 Toronto. Appreciate you being with us. You can call us at 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. I want to talk now about the province um, and their, their messaging around 
um, lawyers' ability to defend clients. Lawyers protest the new legal aid guilty plea certificates. Ontario defense lawyers are being urged to reject a new measure meant to address a, gro- a growing backlog of criminal cases that the Criminal Lawyers Association says will create a coercive dynamic, pushing accused people to plead guilty, even when they may be, inno- may be innocent or have a legitimate defense. We're being joined by our friend Monty McGregor this evening. He's a barrister and solicitor. He's a lawyer with McGregor, Mariah, and Horick. And uh, thanks for joining us tonight, Monty. How are you doing? I'm good, Yona. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to uh, share some time with you. Yes, yeah, it's, it's hard to find people that are up at this hour, so thanks for being part of the night crowd. <laughs> well, the Leafs already won, so I'm good. So though it's, uh, Oh, there you uh, go. Okay, so, so, much, for, so much for me watching my... So much for me watching uh, what I've got PVR here. Okay, well, thank you. Oh, I anyway, ruined just, it for you. I'm sorry. I'm just terrible. I'm sorry. I'm kidding. I hear when my mother does that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, buddy, tell me, like, th- this, um, uh, on a serious note here, this this uh, new legal aid certif- certificate they're talking about, and, and for those that understand, don't understand, legal aid is an organization, a government organization, Ontario government organization, that pays lawyers to represent those that don't have the funds to take care of themselves uh, in terms of hiring somebody. But um, So how is this... This new uh, certificate actually, uh, what does it really mean? What's going on here? Well, so there's obviously a significant backlog in cases that are in the courts. COVID didn't help with that. And generally, it takes time for a matter to get through a court process. It usually can take uh, several months, if not yeah, a couple of years, before you, uh, from the point where you're charged to the point where uh, you have your matter actually adjudicated in court. And because of that, they've got an incentive where they've issued a certificate that allots a small amount of time, approximately three hours, uh, to allow lawyers to assist those people that have been in the system for over a year uh, if they want to plead guilty. It's not to assist them to go to trial. It's a three-hour sort of consultation to confirm whether or not they'd like to proceed to trial on their own uh, self-represented, which is always problematic, and uh, any lawyer would tell you that worst legal advice or the is to say, don't worry, you can do this on your own in a complex, difficult system. Uh, and then on the, on the other side of it, it's designed to see whether or not they should plead guilty and then to potentially assist them on the guilty plea. So there's a significant number of problems from most defense lawyers' perspective, and I won't say everyone, because there's been somewhat of a debate between the criminal lawyers uh, and the Criminal Lawyers Association across the province about whether or not these are a good thing. Some think they are, but I think the majority find that they have uh, just a litany of problems. And one, of course, is whether or not they induce or lead to guilty pleas and potential wrongful convictions. That's obviously one of the big significant concerns. The other problems that coincide with this is that the government has just injected a significant amount of money into hiring more provincial prosecutors to the tune of somewhere around $70 million. And you know, it is a, that comes on the heels of cutting defense funding and legal aid funding so that you've got to, you you have to have a viable defense bar to have an equal playing field. And so with that, uh, defense lawyers for the most part are up in arms about where this is going. How do any of them see this as a good thing? You said some see it's a good thing. There's just a debate. What does that debate look like, Monty? Well, I think for the most part, in fairness to those lawyers that think this is a good idea, is that, you know, they're altruistic about the principles of justice and the hope that, you know, a lawyer can come along and help an individual who's standing there. It's a very complex system. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time going to school and then training on the job uh, to try and ensure that we're diligent enough to be able to manage the system. And the laws always change. 
And, uh, you know, if you're an unrepresented individual, I think the people that are in support of these say it's worse to have an unrepresented person there not knowing anything, and maybe I can help them at this stage of the process. Now, of course, what comes to mind for me is, you know, often this, this is an inducement to say, okay, well, let's see what you can plead guilty to. And you can't be diligent uh, in a lot of instances in reviewing a case in a mere three hours. Some cases are very simple. Uh, and they don't require a lot of you know, thought. But for the majority of criminal cases, the key, one of the key features of being a defense lawyer is making sure you're diligent in reviewing all of the evidence. I mean, everybody's, uh, you know, astonished by the Academy Award-winning movie where it's like, look at this guy that spent so much time in jail because he was wrongfully convicted because nobody looked at this piece of evidence or they didn't do a good job. And, and that's, that's always the concern is that you've got to make sure you dot all the I's, cross all the T's, look under every stone and do everything you can. And can you do that in the time frame that this certificate is designed to cover? And that's, uh, to me, one of the most significant problems because, you know, I always say that a lot of my job is about minimizing damage and ensuring that if somebody's guilty, it's making right. sure that they're the guilty of the right offense. How do I do right. that? I review the evidence, and if I see six charges laid by the police, maybe only one or maybe two are the ones that may warrant a proper conviction. And if so, that's a big difference from what's on the table with the other charges. How is this, how is this Monty, how is this any different than the you know people in court now? They have something called a duty council that's uh, usually young lawyers or lawyers that are starting out or trying to build a practice who give some time to legal aid to, they get paid to actually be in court and represent somebody for a minute while they're being called up. Is this, is this in place of duty council? Is this along with duty council? How does, how does this go together? Well, you have to remember that the court has a series of administrative steps before you get to a court or a trial court. So duty counsel uh, plays a fundamental role in the administration of justice in the province of Ontario. And that a lot of the times is to uh, convey messages for lawyers uh, that are unable to attend because we have often we'll have multiple appearances on a daily basis and they can speak to people in custody and speak to lawyers and say, you know, let them know what's going on with the administration of the matter. And they often assist in bail court, which is, again, another key a uh, fundamental step in the process, whether or not you can be released in advance of your trial to await the administration of it. Uh, and right. and they also have that role in plea courts. And, you know, I think most lawyers would say that they offer a significant service to those people in custody that are unrepresented and are incapable of funding themselves or receiving legal aid because they're very low thresholds uh, to be capable of receiving legal aid. I mean, I can tell you if you've got a a full-time job or even a part-time job, you're going to have trouble being qualified for legal aid because there are two components. One is a financial requirement. You have to make uh, a very low amount of money, almost under the poverty line, to be able to get it. And you also have to be subject to uh, a penal sentence or a custodial sentence of a certain duration. So that's where you get legal aid. And if you don't get it, then you're going to have to pay for a liar privately, or you can rely on duty counsel for these certain stages, but they don't generally do trials. That's not their role. And then they're put in that same, you know, compromising situation where they've got a, the opportunity to ha- assist somebody in plea court, and they don't review the entire case. They don't look at what's called the disclosure. That's all the information that's provided by the police to allow them to say, here, well, look, this witness A is being contradicted by witness B. Does that, you know, maybe that's an issue that would be significant enough to raise a reasonable doubt. So duty okay. counsel has a role. They play a role. Um, and the scope of their role is really constrained by the exact same principles that we try to uphold when defending somebody in this system. So how is this going to impact, you think? Um, so what they're saying here is that the, the, the plan 
according to Legal Aid, they're going to pay lawyers a flat rate of $1,055 to no. resolve an unpre- unrepresented client's court matter. So even if you're, you know, that that's like 300 bucks an hour. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I guess yeah. an average average fee, maybe less than, I don't know. But it, it's certainly not enough to provide the number of, like you say, the number of times and, and, and time that you need to do a good job. So it's, 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 you know, when I look at something like that, when I'm looking at a case or when I'm doing a, some investigative work related to mental health and addiction crimes where I help lawyers like you do that kind yes. of stuff, you know, I, I, if I can't, if I don't have the time or they don't have the resources for me to do a good job, I just say I can't help because I, you know, like you, I don't want to be stuck doing, you know, as my mother would say, a half-assed job. And, um, you know, if, if we're, if we're able to, you know, if we're going to do it, let's do it. And sometimes we just do it and we do it at our own expense just to do a better job. But, you know, in this case, you're, like you say, they're, they're setting up, it sounds to me like they're setting up a, a kind of a, a plea mill, if you will. So you get, you get your money in and out. Everybody gets done. Plead guilty to something, even if you've got some kind of defense. And if you're someone, let's say my next question is, you know, how this is going to impact those that have mental health issues and, and can't provide clarity even, you know, to share with uh, someone like you or someone that's, uh, you know, uh, in duty counselor or whatever, you know, regardless of what the government provides, these, these types of people that have mental health issues and, and can't represent themselves and the crimes are related to their, to their disabilities and, and behaviors and such related to their disease, like they're done, right? They're, this is not going to allow for them to, to even get diversion cord or anything, right? That, that's it exactly. And, and you can't have a fair system when one side is so underfunded. You have to have a viable defense side. If you think of any sport where they don't have a control over the funding being equalized across the teams, you, you know, you, you have like the New York Yankees and everybody else of the past. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, they exactly. pay, their salaries are so much more. And you have that here. And, and that's it exactly because what might be a more intelligent approach is to properly fund rehabilitation for people with addictions, mental health-oriented remedies as opposed to everybody knows all of the problems that have come by, you know, trying to divert mental health issues into the criminal justice system. It's not equipped with the same tools and the same recognition of the problems to try and assist the people. And is it better to just, you know, sort of force people? And you you sort of hit the nail on the head is that the the general concern is, is you, you get people in front of you in plea court where they say, okay, this is the synopsis, and these are the facts that have been, been sort of articulated by the officer that's taken the investigation. And he could be compiling a synopsis of multiple individuals that have provided their version of events without you know, critiquing it, because they're taking it from the prosecutorial side. And they right. say, okay, what, what can you agree with here? Or do you agree with this? And you know, countless number of times in my 20-year career have I had somebody saying, okay, well, yeah, they pushed me first, and then I, we got in a fight, but I certainly didn't kick them on the ground. And then you're like, okay, well, that sounds to me like you might have a self-defense component in the first part and some credibility issues about what actually happened. So do you want to plead guilty to the assault where it embodies that component and a judge is going to sentence you accordingly, or do you want to go to trial? Well, you want to go to trial, and frankly, in our system, to have the best justice system, the finance shouldn't be a question. It shouldn't be whether or not it can be covered as a cost. It should be something where you say, okay, don't worry. We have people on this side that are going to try to fight you know, for yeah. society in a position of the police, and this person is equally funded over here. I mean, if you, if you go to our court system in the Superior Court of Justice, everybody wears the same thing in our system. You don't see yeah. you know, somebody yeah. in, a, in a Gucci suit and somebody in jeans and a T-shirt. Everybody wears black robes, and they look the same. The idea is to have equality and transparency and no favoritism, and when you – that's that's the ideal. That's the principle. Is it being met here? Not really. 
not really when you're this is the remedy where it's saying okay we're gonna we're gonna offer these plea guilty plea certificates and you know to me as you said that the the word the shame of it is people always say you know you know they say well how do you represent somebody who's guilty and it's like well, based on the principles and the beliefs that we have and trying to have the best justice system in the world, it's always the concern that you're going to have somebody that's found guilty when they're not. That's the concern, is that somebody's going to go be penalized and punished when they well, want to be defense. And exactly. And I said, you could sit here and count the number of people who always applaud and cheer when they have this uh, harrowing, you know, wrongful justice overturned. But it's like, that's not what we should aspire to. We shouldn't. We should aspire to not have that by funding everybody equally. By making sure that people, you know, don't have to go bankrupt to defend themselves or be bankrupt to be able to have the government pay for them. That's not, in my mind, the ideal way to approach this. Monty McGregor, he's a friend and a friend of the show. He's a barrister and solicitor. He's a lawyer with McGregor and Mariah Horick. I suggest if you need help, you definitely reach out, 416-707-8673. I might have given out his cell number, but who cares? Monty, Monty, we'll have, we'll have you back on again. Thanks for the Leafs update. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry um, about that. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, night. brother. Not at all. I'm just you know, It's always a pleasure. Please feel, I, I love coming on. I uh, would be glad to be back whenever you want to have me. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thanks so much, Monty. When we come back, uh, folks, we're going to be talking about uh, the situation with uh, COVID and people that have, um, you know, issues like, um, you know, substance use disorder and how this is impacting uh, breakthrough cases of COVID and so on. So we're going to talk about that when we come back. We'll be right back shortly here. You're on about 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining me. This is Yona Bud here on 640 Toronto. You can text me at 647-488-0086 or give us a call here at 416-870-6400 or 888 you want to send me a message throughout the week, you can do so at recovery at 640toronto.com. Love to hear from you and uh, share whatever you want to talk about on the next show or just get back to you in some way if that's what you're looking for. I'm here to help. Uh, people with substance use disorders may be at a higher risk for breakthrough COVID cases studies find. This is from the Seattle Times. It's an American uh, study. Uh, though the vaccine is still highly effective, and the risk of breakthrough infection relatively low these days. Research believes, researchers believe that the high prevalence of other co-occurring health issues among people with addiction may be behind the increased risk for a breakthrough infection. The study's authors controlled for an adverse socioeconomic health deter, uh, detriments like issues with employment and housing and uh, um, comorbid, comorbids. The risk of breakthrough infections for people with and without a substance use disorder was the same. The only exception was in patients diagnosed with a cannabis use disorder, interestingly enough. A generally younger group of patients who were still found to be more likely to develop breakthrough infections, even after research con- um, researchers controlled for other factors. So this may indicate that the additional variables, such as behavioral factors or adverse effects of cannabis on uh, the immune function, could contribute to the higher risk of, for breakthrough infections in that group, interestingly enough, Right. So the study, this is just from pot users, the study looked at more than 579,000 people fully vaccinated against COVID between uh, December 2020 and August 2021. Of that group, 30,000 patients had been diagnosed with a substance use disorder. 
The study found that 7% of those um, had a breakthrough infection at least 14 days after their second shot and compared to 36 of people without a substance use disorder. So almost twice as many, right? So people with substance use disorder were almost more likely, also more likely, excuse me, to experience a serious breakthrough infection, researchers found. Okay, so that starts to make sense now, and I'll tell you why. Because you're going to reduce, if you have a, a substance use disorder, it's going to affect your immune system. You're going to be weaker. You're generally not doing things like working out, eating properly, and sleeping properly, typically, at least not the patients that I see. Uh, and the study authors also acknowledged that there's limitations, including that COVID-19 vaccines taken outside of the healthcare organizations, like mass vaccine clinics and pharmacies, might not show up in the data used to actually control the, conduct the study. But there's enough information that they're very com- confident that the breakthrough COVID-19 case was asymptomatic, symptomatic, or severe, whether cases they looked at were caused by other forms of the of uh, cont- cont- um, uh, contagious things like the Delta variant, Delta variant, and so on. So the population with substance use disorder uh, have a lot more cor- comorbidities, right? Comorbidity, which may make them more vulnerable to disease, according to the experts. Important that they say to treat substance use from a physical health perspective not just as a behavioral one. So we've been saying that for years. And the bot, you know, what we're saying is really simply, real simple, right? That people with substance use disorder, people that have issues around uh, substance use and drug use and alcohol use and so on, those folks have a lower immune system typically because of their low care, self-care, uh, the, the, the low focus they have on self-care, right? So if we spend more time helping those with substance use disorder fix and work through their physical ailments, their, their health problems, if you will, right? Their, their, their actual health issues, you know, the lack of sleep, lack of nutrition, generally their vitamin counters down, they're, def, they're usually de, you know, de, de, deficient in vitamin D, vitamin C, um, lots of other issues around uh, pulmonary issues, around, uh, around breathing. If you're, if, you're, if you're smoking your drugs, whether it's marijuana, whether it's methamphetamine, crack cocaine, Heroin, if you're smoking your drugs, you have much higher issues, much more difficult time around issues related to breathing, right? And this Delta variant and COVID in general, it gets into our breathing. So it's definitely a, a negative impact on our breathing, it makes it more difficult. If you already have CPO, COPD, which is a, you know, kind of a disease around breathing and, or any, any related, any lung issues, bronchitis, um, um, any of the diseases that you, you know, that kids have when they're young that they, you know, they, they need puffers for any kind of breathing issues. Right. Um, so these are the kinds of things that if we spend more time focused on helping those with substance use disorder, deal with their physical needs as well as their mental needs. We need to do that too, of course. I mean, I'm a therapist. It's the one thing I want to definitely make sure that everybody understands that you can never do enough therapy. And there's, you know, always some form of therapy available somewhere. Um, if you need help, I'm glad to help you with that. Give me a call and we'll get hooked up. You can call and uh, Corey will take your number. We can talk after the show. I'd be glad to, to give you a call on Monday and, and talk about options for you if you're looking for help. But, you know, we need to understand that in the immune system, the consequences of substance abuse and substance use, not even just abuse, but substance use, uh, continued substance use, has a real detrimental effect on our immune system. So if you're a drug user and you're eating, sleeping, and working out, you know, maybe less, less of a chance for you to have issues around um, long-term COVID uh, complications. Uh, a lot of people are finding after their second shot 
uh, that the study found that after the second shot, people were reacting negatively in those control groups. And, and as I said, strangely enough, the, 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 the marijuana, that cannabis use, seemed to be a big factor uh, in this study as it relates to those that have uh, issues around their, their, their substance abuse disease and the vaccine and COVID and getting sick, not getting sick, and so on. The, 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 amongst the vaccinated members of that group, uh, the, the hospitalization numbers were still very low. So what does this all mean? At the end of the day, it just means that when we're looking at people with substance abuse disorder, or even for that matter, we're looking at people with mental health disorders, we have to recognize that they are a vulnerable group, not just in terms of their disease, in terms of what they use and don't use, but in terms of their physical well-being. So if you're depressed and you can't get out of bed to go to work or go to school or come upstairs and have dinner or breakfast with your family, likely you're not going to a doctor, likely you're not going to a gym, likely you're not sleeping properly, likely you're not eating properly. So if you're not eating properly, sleeping properly, and having some form of physical exercise, I don't mean everybody needs to go to a gym and uh, work out like Arnold Schwarzenegger, at least in the day, right? But some form of physical exercise. Right, going for a walk, going for a bike ride, uh, you know, sw- uh, raking leaves. If there's leaves in your neighborhood that you can go and rake, go rake some leaves. It's really good exercise. Walking a dog if you have one, or, or doing what you need to. You know, go up and down stairs if you live in a building. You know, you don't want to get outside. You're afraid of getting outside. The weather's not good or whatever. You know, walk the stairs. Go down one side, come up the other. Right? How we walk Siggy when there's bad weather. We don't take him outside because he's so little. When the weather's really bad, we just walk him through our building. Go down one set, go down set of you know three or four sets of stairs, and go around down the hall, and go up another three or four sets of stairs, and do that a couple of times, and it's exercise, some form of exercise, some form of diet where you're eating properly. That means, according to you, to me and most experts, that means some form of breakfast, something decent for lunch, and something decent for dinner. The breakfast one is the most important. So eat what you can afford, eat what you can have, eat what you can do. Eggs are excellent if you can have them. Smoothies work if you can make them. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, anything you can put in a blender is easy to take first thing in the morning. But you got to eat, you got to sleep, and you got to get some form of exercise. And if you're living with people that have issues around mental health and substance abuse disorder, then you want to make sure you're maybe go for a walk with them or take them out skating or go for a walk in the woods and I don't know, go for a drive in a nice neighborhood where you can get out of the car and go for a walk, whatever. But some form of exercise will help the people that need the help the most. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about overdose deaths, including cocaine and methamphetamine, how they tripled in the shadow of the opioid deaths. So we're seeing an increase in stimulants and a decrease in opioid use. And we'll talk about why as soon as we come back. Jonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Now. Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back, my friends. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is Yoni here on 640 Toronto. You are the best audience ever, and I love you guys. You are uh, a good reason to get up and uh, do this work every, uh, every week, and I do appreciate the feedback and the notes we get through the week. And uh, if you want to say something or share something with us, let us know, and uh, we'll either get you on the air or share your information uh, on your behalf. Um, or try to just send you back a message going, hey, thanks for watching. So feel free to reach out. I promise we won't bite. We're not very dangerous here at all. Um, Overdose deaths involving cocaine or meth tripled in the shadow of opioid uh, crisis. That's the study uh, that we're looking at. Study in veterans, American veterans, shows shows many fatal overdoses involved 
multiple substances, actually. 70% of those who died with stimulants in their system hadn't received addiction treatment recently. So even as the opioid epidemic is you know, dominating everyone's attention, the rate of overdose deaths invo- involving uh, uh, stimulants like cocaine, methamphetamine, other, other stimulants, crack cocaine and so on, tripled and a new study in um, veterans suggests more than half of the 3,600 veterans who died from overdoses um, between 2012 and 2018 also had other substances in their system. And in the group, most of those other substances were opioids, including both synthetic and prescription opioids. So one, one wonders if, you know, these people are using proper prescription opioids and using street stimulants uh, to balance their buzz, so to speak, right? One takes you up and one takes you down. Stimulants, obviously, are those designed to speed you up, so to speak, and opioids typically bring you down. It depends, though. I know those that, I know people that have mental health issues uh, around ADHD and such that when they do lines of cocaine or when they do cocaine, um, it actually slows them down, similar to what Ritalin would do um, or some of the other medications used to manage ADHD. It would help. It, it would slow them down. For you and I, it might speed us up, right? So it depends on your chemi- the chemistry uh, that you that you have within yourself, your your chemical balance, how that works, how you metabolize, and so on. Other half of fatal veteran overdoses involve stimulants really resulted from stimulant overdose without the presence of of opioids. So people are now dying from these stimulants. And when they're finding, by the way, when they're finding a, the presence of opioids uh, in the stimulants, they're also they're, they're, you're also talking about fentanyl. So fentanyl is being used to cut lots of things. Cut meaning to add into. Uh, street drugs to make them more, uh, more to make them stronger, to make them more impactful, to you know pack a wallop, whatever the term might be, if you were trying to sell them to somebody. Uh, but it's an inexpensive way to make uh, drugs stretch further, so you get more of it. Um, it's it's cutting it. It's what they call cutting it, or you know, uh, adding to it in order to to, to increase the value. Uh, but it, the the veterans study seventy percent hadn't received any treatment in in addiction in the clinic in the year before they died. So we're not we're not seeing a lot of people coming in for treatment around cocaine um, and stimulant abuse. We're seeing a lot of people obviously being focused on their opioids and opioid abuse and, and use. Combination of opioids and stimulants were more likely um, someone who died from a combination of opioids and stimulants were more likely to have received treatment. So in other words, if you're not if you're not having a problem with opioids, getting your treatment may not as not be as easy as it might be for those that are willing to say, I've got a problem with heroin. So what we're talking about, we're talking about a population of people who are, who are using street drugs in a way to, obviously, I, I believe that, you know, uh, that substance use disorder is strictly a function of hiding from or getting rid of the pain that's being caused by unsettled mental health. I mean, in the, in the decades that I've been doing this and the thousands of people I've worked with, I, I don't think I've ever treated somebody for... Um, substance abuse disorder that didn't have some mental health issues attached to it, for sure. Basic stuff, for sure, like anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, a trauma, you know, some form of PTSD isn't an unusual characteristic to find uh, in people that I do, break, you know, work with. So it's, you know, it's a function of what you have going into this. So if, you're, if your drug of choice is, is, a, is a speed me up, you know, get me, get me roaring going kind of drug, um, you know, it's going it to have a different impact than on than those that are taking drugs that slow you down, really knock you down, if you will. So, for residents of rural areas and for those who have experienced homelessness, um, 
it, they, they find that the, limit, the limited medication-based treatments to individuals reduce their use of methamphetamine or cocaine. Multiple medications-based treatments are available for those who have opioid or alcohol use disorder. So it's hard to get it again. It's hard to get it for this niche group of folks that are wired on stimulants. The study also highlights disparities in overdose risk from stimulants. For, exa- for example, one-third of all the overdose deaths involving stimulants were in black veterans. Remember, this was a segment of black of, of, uh, of soldiers, of veterans who've, who were being tested and being uh, looked at in this research study, as were two-thirds of the deaths from cocaine alone. So the, the, the majority of those dying, one-third, not a majority, one-third of the overdose deaths involving stimulants were black, and where two-thirds of the deaths were from cocaine alone. So we're probably talking about crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine. has a very different impact on you if you snort it versus smoking it, snorting it, or shooting it in your arms. Um, big difference. When you cook it, it's different than when you just cut up some lines and stick them up your nose. And Still not a great way to go, but easier to manage from an addiction and treatment perspective. Rural residents were more likely to die from methamphetamine alone or in combination with other substances. If opioids were present, they were more likely to be prescription opioids rather than synthetic street-related opioids, right? So versus prescription opioids like Oxy versus synthetic opioids like uh, fentanyl. So if you lived in a rural setting, because we know rural, you know, in rural settings, especially uh, in countries that have, you know, the kind of weather that permits it, uh, a lot of people are cooking their their methamphetamine uh, outside in, 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 uh, in old barns and uh, old RVs, if you saw the movie, you know, saw the TV show, um, you know, cooking, uh, cooking meth in an RV. But it, it's easier to do. It's cheap. You know, if you know how to do it, you can uh, you can cook up a batch of meth pretty easily. It's, it's dangerous. Like, you can have this stuff blow up in your face and scar you for life. But um, anyway, the, the experts need to understand that we have to build better awareness of the roles of stimulants place as a factor in overdose. We're not spending enough time, and I would agree with this study, by the way. And we're not spending enough time, we're not concentrating enough, focusing enough on those that are struggling with uh, stimulant use disorder, right? And there are treatments available. You know, you treat someone with stimulant use disorder pretty much the same way as you treat somebody that has um, any form of uh, addiction issue or obsession issue. So 3,631 patients died from the stimulant-involved overdose, according to the test. Uh, the stimulant-involved overdose tests were categorized by stimulant types, cocaine, methamphetamine, and others. And the finding, the rate of overdose deaths was 3.6 times higher in 2018 than in 2012. Okay? So the rate of overdose was three times higher from 2018 to two, from two, in 2018 than from 2012. Increases across all toxicology profiles. Compared with cocaine-involved overdose and methamphetamine-involved overdoses, we're less likely with people who are older, so we're finding it in younger people, Right? So what's the conclusion of their, uh, of their study? That the rate of deaths amongst U.S. veterans from stimulant-related overdose was three times higher. Key differences in characteristics of patients across overdose toxicology profiles, such as geographic location, healthcare use, point to distinct, uh, point to distinct treatment needs, and based on stimulant use type. So you treat people differently based on the drugs they're using. Well, not necessarily, uh, but anyway, I, I think uh, care is care. People aren't getting what they need. People are dying from, you know, these substance use disorders, and we need to do a much better job. As soon as we come back, we're going to talk about how BC is asking Ottawa for an exemption 
to decriminalize the kind of drugs that we're talking about people dying from right now and uh, getting them the help they need as opposed to sending them to jail. So you can call us and tell us how you feel about that, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. And when we come back, that's what we're talking about. Should we send people to jail if they have uh, substance use disorder or should we get them the help they need and ask Ottawa to decriminalize small numbers of uh, gram production or fall small numbers of possession in terms of small uh, small gram amounts. We'll get to that as soon as we come back. Yonabad, six forty, Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabad only on six forty Toronto. There is no magic bullet to end the drug poisoning crisis, but decriminalizing people who use drugs is essential to stemming the tide of the toxic drug crisis. It's essential to removing the stigma around drug use, which is itself vital to ending overdose deaths and to building a more comprehensive system of mental health and addictions care for British Columbians. Uh, that was, uh, as you know, that was a conversation had recently about um, Ottawa being asked to uh, exempt uh, decriminalize to exempt uh, those that are carrying small amounts of drugs from criminalized um, prosecution, if you will, uh, using decrimin- decriminalizing illicit drug possession for the benefit of helping people. And uh, I want to thank Corey uh, for all the great uh, clips tonight and keeping the show flowing. And him and Devon do a great job of keeping things moving and flowing. So I want to thank them for the work that they do. And thank you all for joining us tonight. Uh, not that I'm signing off, but just want to let you know in case you decide to walk off early. Anyway, the um, after an announcement late last April, the province has officially become the first uh, province to ask Ottawa for the exemption from Health Canada under Section 56 under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So they're asking for an exemption to decriminalize personal possession of, of illicit drugs. The application would decriminalize personal possession of up to four and a half grams, four and a half grams of illicit drugs, including heroin and fentanyl. Substance use and addiction is a public health issue, not a criminal one. Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Sheila Malcolmson, said Monday she's the addiction, uh, Minister of Mental Health and Addictions in B.C. If the federal government grants the request, British Columbia is caught, uh, con- caught with less than 4.5 grams, would be provided with information around accessing addiction health services. Police would not seize the drugs from them. So the story is that you're not going to go to jail. You're going to be able to keep your dope. The problem is, so... Problem is that more than 7,700 British Columbians have died from this drug overdose since uh, it became, became an emergency in 2016. People were dying before that, but it became a, something we talked about in and around 2016. Problem with the three and a half or four and a half gram count is if a guy is running drugs, delivering drugs, three and a half grams, you know, of heroin is you know enough to uh, sell and make real money, right? Uh, three and a half grams, four and a half grams of, of heroin. Uh, you know, typically a heroin user on the street buys a gram at a time and uh, uses up to a tenth of it in each, you know, a tenth, two tenths, three tenths, depending on their, on their, uh, their, um, the way they react to the drug, their, their, their ability to, to, um, you know, to, to, to metabolize it, right? So their tolerance level, if you will, right? So four and a half grams could be enough for a guy to carry around, a person to carry around and make sales from and still not go to jail. But I think the police really have to look at whose pocket it's in. And you can tell the difference of someone who's got some issues because, as I said before, if someone has a substance abuse disorder, typically have some mental health issues as well. So the current toxic drug supplies made the last 20 months of the province, 
in, 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 in BC, the province's most deadly. So the province provided a 43-page report to the federal government as part of the exemption application detailing the recent increases in deaths linked to a higher concentrations of fentanyl. Yet if you've got four and a half grams of fentanyl in your pocket, they're going to let you keep it. So four and a half grams of fentanyl is a lot of fentanyl, just so you know. You only need like a little bit, like a couple of grains, like salt grains, if you will, like two or three little pieces of salt. If that was fentanyl, that could be enough to kill you. Four and a half grams seems like an awful lot. But they're, they're trying to hone in on, on percentages and amounts and which drugs. I, I, I'm not sure how this is going to play out. There's really good things about this in terms of decriminalizing it so we can get help to the people that need it. But there's some loopholes here in terms of drug dealers and the types of drugs that they're prepared to let fly. So I think if someone is you know dealing with a little bit of heroin or, or, or oxy or cocaine or methamphetamine, it's one thing. Four and a half grams of fentanyl might be something you'd want to stick in, you know, take off the street if you're a police officer. In, exa- in, in addition to the exemption, there continued to uh, continues its other work to prevent illicit drug deaths in, in, in BC, including prevention, prescribed safer supply, and harm reduction efforts. So I know that in this city, it's a hard it's hard enough to find facilities that they'll let be used for harm reduction facilities. Uh, I can't imagine how Canadians or how Torontonians or Ontarians are going to feel about people walking around the streets with four and a half grams of whatever drug they have and kind of waving at police going, how you doing, officer? Remember, if they're pulled over and they're stopped, they're supposed to be given opportunities to get help. It's an opportunity to intervene. It's an opportunity to, to provide some form of counseling. It's an opportunity to take them into a, into a 24-hour uh, drop-in uh, substance you know, uh, recovery program. Whether it's at you know whether it's the emergency wing at uh, CAMH or in other hospitals, you know it's an opportunity when they're in your hands not to just let them go so that we don't have to process that many more criminals with such small amounts of drugs, but it's an opportunity to give them help, get them help. Can't let that opportunity slip through our fingers. We can't just let it slip through as okay, well they don't have that much on them. It's not a big deal. I don't want to have to do all the paperwork. I'm just going to let it go. And hey, by the way, here's a pamphlet on you know, where you can go get help. So police officers need to use the opportunity, if they can, in their busy schedules, to try to promote, motivate, stimulate, and advocate for these people, the people that they pick up off the street that have drugs on them and are obviously suffering with drug abuse disorder. I'm not talking about three guys that are out on a, on a Saturday night with their buddies with three grams of Coke in their pocket. They for sure should get a ticket. They for sure should have their drugs taken away. But if someone is suffering and their drug, the, the drug abuse disorder is part of their mental health disorder, it's a different thing. So who's going to make that call? I'm not sure our current police staff are empowered or educated to make that call, nor should it be on them perhaps. A year ago, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart announced a plan to decriminalize simple possession of drugs through a federal health exemption. The city submitted its final proposal to help Canada on June the 1st. Last, last month, Council almost unanimously passed a motion to back a push for comp- compassion clubs to safe, supply safer drugs in the city in the form of a peer-led facility selling pharmaceutical-grade drugs like heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. So not only are we talking about decriminalizing the drugs, we're also talking about introducing an opportunity for compassion clubs, places where people can go and get their heroin for free and not have it be tainted. We've seen this here in Ontario, certainly in Toronto. They've seen it with alcohol. 
where people that have alcohol use disorder can stay and live in facilities where they'll be doled out small amounts of alcohol. We see it with opioid use disorder where they're being doled out small amounts of, um, of hydromorph. So there's something around the Compassion Club thing. We don't have enough time to get into it tonight, but it's certainly worth talking about. Uh, the whole decriminalization thing I think is definitely worth looking at. And, and again, only in terms of being able to provide a gateway, an opportunity, a window to help for those that could use it, need it, and desperately want it, but for the most part can't find it or get into it. Um, certainly when you show up with a police officer, you know, with the back of a police car and you walk into a, into a sober facility or into a detox center, they might pay more attention, and you, chances are they might not put you on the same list as they do when you try to call from home. Anyway, tomorrow or tonight, sometime before I go to bed, I'm changing all the clocks in my house. We have a whole bunch of them. Changing a whole bunch of clocks in my house, and uh, even on my G-Shock, I figured out how to do that, which took me some time. But at 2 o'clock tonight, 2 a.m. tomorrow morning, clocks go back, right? So before we get off the air here real quick, I want you to know that when the clocks go back, it can impact your daily life going forward for the next week. So gaining that sleep might make you a little more lethargic, might throw you off your personal clock, might throw you off your schedule. Get up when your body tells you to get up, go to sleep when your body tells you to go to sleep. Forget about the hour each way, which would be my suggestion, and just enjoy the extra night's sleep, the extra hour's sleep until it kind of wears off and becomes just a dark, dreary morning at 7.30 in Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I appreciate you all. I appreciate what you do uh, for one another. I appreciate that you tuned in and spent some time with us. Give each other a big hug, right? Love the one you're with. Do good. Be nice out there. Treat somebody like you want them to treat you, and make your mom proud because she'll know wherever she is that you're doing the right thing or not. We'll see you next week. This is Yonabud, 640 Toronto.